Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we discuss a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress, and ideally, a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we discuss debt. We're asking ourselves, what is the impact of individual debt on the practice of law? I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, Darlene. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm well. It's snowing a lot this morning, and the sidewalks were covered in ice. But Such I made it. A Canadian the- point. <laughs> this is our life for people listening outside. Well, for people that don't live here, it's exotic. And people that do live here, they can empathize. It's what we do. It's like when we we Canadians always start with a discussion of the weather, and then we move on to more weighty topics like debt and the impact on the yeah. legal practice. <laughs> but before we get there, how's your week been? It's been good. I've driven yeah. on some snowy roads because we have clients outside of uh, the city of Toronto in a in a part of um, in a part of Ontario that is a very tech focused. Um, place called Waterloo. My hometown. Waterloo, Mike's hometown. Yes. Where I grew up. And uh, always a little bit treacherous driving there this time of year, but I enjoyed it. Great people out there and saw some very exciting new spaces where a whole bunch of companies um, collaborate to do interesting things. So yeah, it was fun. How about you? Good. I'm starting to realize that this, for some reason, I'll, there's a lot of transition going on in things I'm involved in, in my life this week. It's like we're moving my daughter to the big girl bed, which is mm-hmm. which is an experience so far. We're, it's we're dipping our toe in that pool right now. She's she don't, she'll do stories in there, and then she wants to go back to her crib, and she just walks over, and it's very cute. Um, and then the one of the boards I sit on, we're transitioning to hire a new leader, and then also looking at a community group uh, in Hamilton in the art sector that we're starting out. Uh, yeah, so just a lot of new, which is exciting, and also like you know. It transitions to take time and some effort. So it's been quite fascinating, I think. That so uh, picks up on where we left off with the millennial episode where you said how busy mm-hmm. you are. And you've just mentioned two boards, transitioning a toddler, working hard. It's, you've got a lot going on. You know, you got to do the good work. Well, plus we have to talk about being Canadian and whether you also play hockey. <laughs> just oh, like a thing. I, you know, I didn't even want to get I thought about talking about this. <laughs> I had a disagreement. <laughs> oh, no. I think it's funny you bring that up. So on Tuesday, playing this hockey league, it's a men's league, pretty good caliber. I was skating toward uh, the puck in the other team's zone full speed, and I got tripped and went feet first into the boards quite hard, Uh-oh. and there was no call, which is infuriating. And I, it's funny, in our profession, I think we often have the ability to like talk about how we disagree <laughs> with a decision, hmm. and I'm so used to that. That it's very difficult for me to just kind of like accept an unjust, in my view, decision. <laughs> Did you feel it was inappropriate? To, do you even have a, a ref in your league? I guess you yeah, do. with oh, two refs, two refs, and it was like wow. legit. I don't mind like generally being tripped or whatever, but it's a legit dangerous play. <laughs> so I thought it deserved to be penalized. So anyway, and it was not, and that upset me. It was in my head for like a day and a half after we played oh for some God. reason. I don't know why. Well, because it's an injustice. We lawyers, we don't That's like it. injustice. And we're about to talk about a, a form of financial injustice. But Oh, segue alert, darling. <laughs> That's your job. Yes, whenever I wade into that, it's uh, somewhat spottily done. But anyway, That's a very good segue. go ahead. So yeah, we're talking about debt. 
um, on the show today. And uh, one of the reasons why um, you know this is top of mind for us is it's a fascinating report came out um, from the LSSO. So that's the Law Student Society of Ontario. And so it's basically an organization made up of uh, the respective law school student bases uh, in Ontario specifically. Uh, and this study looked at a number of things. They surveyed students in each uh, law school, about 700 respondents just under that and talked about everything from, you know, the representation of uh, different uh, types of folks in law school. So everything from people who are visual minorities to people who experience disabilities and so on. Uh, but it, it also uh, focused on finances and the, in the situations folks were in before law school, after law school, you know, and, and how that may be a barrier um, for people to enroll in law school at all and becoming lawyers, or at least certainly informs what people plan to do after law school once they see the debt load. And the numbers bear that out, which we'll, which I'll get to as we discuss. Um, but that that brought on the conversation, as Darlene pointed out uh, in our pre-chat, this isn't new. And Darlene, you have interesting experience uh, with advocating in this space before, yeah? Well, yeah. I mean, we um, tuition in the province, uh, in this province, was reasonable until you know, fairly late in the game. So for anyone listening in the United States, for example, our tuition would be laughably low. It would be, you know, comparable to, I guess, a state school, but even lower. Um, and when I went through um, U of T law school here in Toronto, there was a big jump in the tuition, um, which was not, again, in context against today's numbers, they're not big numbers but it was a, a sea change. And we were moving towards a more American system, a more privatized style of tuition. And I was involved at the time in advocating against it because my view, sort of why I went to law school in the first place was a little bit of the mix of the professional and the political. Um, I always thought, you know, go to law school and in law, you have this ability to have an impact on how society looks, right? So a lot of politicians come out of law school, a lot of people who have um, sort of a, a policy impact was my way of looking at it. And my fear was that if the tuition went so high that it was easier to go to law school or became a thing to go to law school, if you could only do it if you were well off to begin with, um, that that would be bad for society. So we were advocating against it. I was part of a group of students that were very, very um, you know, engaged with the topic as it happened, they did deregulate tuition here. And so the tuition now, I think at U of T, last time I checked, is $38,000 a year, which uh, when you grow up with publicly funded education um, is pretty shocking and quite a departure from what sort of the partners at the firms today certainly paid nothing like that. I think maybe one or $2,000 a year back in the day. So um, it was a big sea change. I was involved. So when I say it's not a new issue, I think that the issues today are harder because of the numbers, like the the sheer volume mm -hmm. of the tuition, the sheer, you know, sky high housing prices. Once you're finished paying off the debt, like everything is compounded. But um, it's it's something that these things take time to build up. You know, this is like a this is twenty years in the making. This problem, at least. Yeah, and. So that's my uh, Gen X experience. And now, you know, in your, you've come out of law school more recently. So, um, you know, you came in when everything was already 
higher and deregulated. Yeah. And it's, you know, I've been out for, so I graduated in 2013, so six years. Um, and it's, it's only again, uh, grown in cost since then, but you know, I saw myself in, in a lot of the, um, the, the facts that were provided through the study. And so, uh, for example, they, they asked, okay, students, what do your parents in terms of education, what did they achieve? And it showed that, um, of the people who had parents who finished post-secondary education, they're far more likely to have a lower debt load leaving. So we can kind of understand that if your parents mm-hmm. both have a credential, college or university, uh, you know, perhaps they're helping you financially, or you've been put in a position where you avoided debt from undergrad and so on, and and um, they have a lower debt load versus uh, students with parents with um, one or, or zero credentials are far more likely to carry a high debt load. They carried up to a, th- a debt load of thirty-two thousand higher um, in, when they wow. got to third year compared to folks uh, who had parents who had completed post-secondary. And that was me. My, my as I, I think I mentioned an episode or two before, neither of my parents completed a post-secondary cre- credential. So I saw myself there, um, it, it, which was fascinating. And also, they also talk gave an interesting perspective on what things looked like for students when they start to go to law school. 42% uh, had less than $5,000 in assets before entering law school. You know, interesting that generally everybody is able to get, uh, if they need one, a, a bank line of credit without a cosigner, 81.3% were able to achieve that. So what we see is, you know, almost half of students have less than $5,000 in assets, can access bank lines of credit. Uh, and uh, that's the source of funding that they are able to gather to go uh, into law school. And then what bears out from that is of the students that take on debt in law school, first year on average had an, uh, almost $30,000 in debt before paying winter tuition. That increased almost $60,000 in debt for second year students and uh, $83,000 in debt for third year students. So these are really high and significant numbers. I'm feeling my stress level creep up just vicariously. You know, these are all significant numbers, but what one that's really struck me, and again, I saw myself in it, um, 19.32% of law students think it's going to take them more than 10 years to pay off their debt when they're done. So what we have this, like, we have a group of folks, um, you know, who, if you, if you look at this before going into law school, this is a mountain to face. And the, the saddest thing that comes from this and what the statistics bore out in the study is that people who are underrepresented in law schools, so for example, indigenous folks who, um, you know, 4.9% of people in Canada are, are indigenous we only see 2% of indigenous representation in, in law schools. And perhaps it's because they, from these numbers, uh, seem to carry the, the highest debt load uh, out of law school, which is uh, of, of a personal characteristic group, which is $82,000, 82, three. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're a person considering entering law school, this is a daunting uh, you know, <laughs> undertaking to see, okay, if I do this, then like, this is where I'll be if everything works out, if I'm successful in first year and, and, and so on. Like if I get through the academics, which we could have a whole other conversation about that, that is very difficult to do. If you get through all that, on the other side, you're faced with this huge black hole that you have to feed into. And a lot of people feel they're going to have to do that for the next, next decade of their lives. I, I remember having that debt. And I think just throwing back to our, our episode with Roselle Kim about millennials and burnout, just 
law is a difficult profession. Those first years are hard. And I think that to have on top of that, this idea that you've got all this debt and you know, you've got to take a job that may or may not be a fit for you because you need a certain level of income to cover all these debts. That's all very stressful. And I guess my, my thinking is, is that good for our profession? You know, net, net, is that a good thing? Probably not. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> my thought. Certainly when you talk about fulfillment, you know, I don't think it's a secret that a lot of folks target high paying firms out of law school to try to offset their debt load, knowing that that's not what they're passionate about or where they might do their best work or where they want to be long term, which has an effect obviously on the person, but but has an effect as well on that firm and, and the profession generally. If you have a set of folks who are unhappy every day where they are and are burdened with, you know, very, you know, stressful work and a lot of hours, uh, you know, you, you take a look at the mental health um, statistics about lawyers and, and, you know, we see people are struggling. Um, so certainly, you know, so many things <laughs> are motivated by real financial circumstance. And I know from looking at my cohort, a lot of us came in uh, with a goal of using the tool of being a lawyer to produce social good. And far less people walk down that whole path by the end of law school um, because in large part of the financial burden that they started to build. Um, and so uh, certainly you look at fulfillment, you look at working on something you're passionate about, and you look you look at having a job that at least you can you know, feel positive about uh, every morning you go. And this, this situation does not help. I had a wonderful opportunity, just to use our favorite word on the podcast, um, you know, an opportunity at a law school to work at a firm that I thought did really interesting work and great people. And um, But I did kind of promise to myself that if when my student debt was paid off, and if after a couple of years, the type of work I was doing was not my dream job, that I would move on. You do have to be, you know, proactively insulating yourself to say, I'm not going to get sucked in by the financial side. You know, if I get sucked in because I love the work or this is the place for me, great. Mm -hmm. You know, kudos to you to get, you know, to mm -hmm. the point where you had that job out of law school. A lot of people, especially folks mm -hmm. with, who are paying their own way, there are barriers to get there. And, and you know, there's been conversations this week on uh, Twitter about the sort of barriers that people felt at law school. And for example, um, a lot of people were talking about literally not having money to buy a suit yes. uh, for their interviews uh, and, and really struggling to, to do that. Or as well, this is like less less obvious, but I think it bears it out, especially when we you know, considering our conversation last week. We talked last week about how building relationships uh, is imperative to success uh, and in the profession. And, and, and you mentioned, you know, you have this great network of people from law school. And some people I, I know um, in law school, um, we, we look at our budget and we say, we, I can't go out mm -hmm. on Friday with everybody. Yep. Um, and that, that has a cumulative effect. Or you have children. Like there were people in our law school who literally had a family. Oh, for sure. They were a single yeah. mom or they didn't live in Toronto, yeah. some of them. And that's it. I was just yeah. going to yeah, get to the cost of, of living near campus, mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't have that luxury and, and either have to stay with family or friends outside of the core are commuting in. They have less time to study or socialize. You know, there's, there are these, you know, 
kind of echo effects of of not having the financial heft um, that wind up putting people with less money in a worse position mm-hmm. um, than folks who who come in with you know a bunch saved credit to them uh, or some support uh, from other sources um, and so. You know, obviously, when we get to the conversation about fulfillment in work, it's important. And I and I and I, t- I take it well from what you're saying of like, if you do wind up in that position of of getting a job that pays well, but you're not passionate about, you know, position yourself well to get out of it at some point. I, and 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 I think that's very good advice. But uh, you know, for a lot of folks, I think it's it's worth pointing out, and then we see this, uh, you know, often. And I saw it in interviewing. Um, when I was in law school, it, you wind up seeing people who you expect to see at these interviews. And those are the people who <laughs> generally um, I, I seem to have this um, ability to not focus on money and not stress mm-hmm. about these other, um, you know, echo effects and just go hard at the work and uh, go and, and they wind up having an advantage because of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is not it's so baked into the profession and that shouldn't be because I don't think it's the same for medical um, students, for example. I don't know. I don't know enough about that, but I feel like this is something we uniquely deal with because in law there it's become like there is this tier where you can make a lot of money and then there's this tier where you can make a normal sort of wage Mm -hmm. Um, and you can be, I think one of the great gifts of this profession is that you can hang out your shingle and build a network that can help you, um, get up to speed and do all of that stuff. And you can offer your services, you know, like there are a lot of people who practice as sole proprietors or in smaller firms or in social justice or in house, or, you know, there are a lot of other jobs for lawyers. Um, it's just that those first years out of law school, um, it's tough to like, I think the other thing we don't maybe do as well, and maybe this is changing with some of the things like the law practice program and things, but it's difficult to get the right training in those early years. So I was trained, um, very well at my firm by, um, partners that were amazing lawyers and associates, but, and there was a training program established for, for the associates, which was a blessing. Um, I think that, there's always, you can always learn as long as you have good people around you who know and can teach you, right? And that's, that's the hard piece of our profession. You can't, you need that when you're learning. Right. Yeah. And so the, you know, but the ability, like the literal like ability to to survive uh, out on your own um, that requires a certain amount of financial stability as well. Right. Um, And what we're seeing, uh, okay, so take these these group of, let's say, you know, these privileged folks and these pr- people with less privilege, right? The privileged folks generally trend to get the Bay Street job or the well-paying mm-hmm. job out of law school. And the people who don't have the same amount of privilege, uh, especially when it comes to articling versus, I, this is a bit inside baseball for people outside of Ontario, but either you... Uh, you know, articles. So after you finish law school, you work under a lawyer for a year, or uh, you you go to this law practice program, which is a combination of in class and uh, you know practical in office experience. Most of the people without privilege wind up in the LPP program, which means they don't have a direct pipeline to an employer. Which means, in theory, 
they can still hang their shingle and and go you know sell their services but they're the people who have the most debt <laughs> so yeah exactly it's not it, it's not possible it's in, it's just not possible and and you make a great point about uh you know the the prospects it, it, there's a versus doctors who uh, it, here in Canada you know you graduate um and you you kind of see where your salary is going to be for effectively your whole life and um, for lawyers, because there is such a variance, there is there is no guarantee that you're going to be what people, you know, achieve what people just think a lawyer achieves financially. And so, mm-hmm. that's a really again daunting and scary thing to pay through law school and have a ton of debt, then enter into a program that you have to pay for and not be paid to do, uh, and increase that debt, and then not have a direct pi- and I know they're trying to solve this but not have a direct pipeline into an employer and really the opportunity to put up your shingle exists but exists more in theory. And so um what we wind up with it at least at this point from what we're seeing with the numbers is a profession that despite the fact that we're bringing on, you know, more folks from less privileged backgrounds into law school compared to what we've had uh, in the last few decades the barrier for them just gets kicked down the road a little bit. So the barrier used right, to be getting into point. law school. Mm-hmm. The barrier used to be articling. Um, and now the barrier is like, okay, well, you're a lawyer now, so good luck. And 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 those folks are left with an untenable opportunity. I mean, an opportunity that makes it very difficult to out the gate um, well, succeed. Well, I think you're highlighting is that so, so much of this stuff is just not to do with your ability to do black letter law anyway. No, right? like that's <laughs> nothing to do. I did have a yeah. request from a listener to highlight what we mean by privilege more specifically. Um, and I right. always wanted to do an episode on that. But just for a quick, uh, quick sidebar on that, you know, it's the type of things that you're talking about, Mike, when you say like, you don't have, you have a suit already, that's a form of privilege, or you know where to go to get the right suit. Or like, I'll tell you, if if anyone, if I could post a picture of the suit that I wore to interviews on this podcast, like, man, we could just laugh about that forever. Um, you know, having a laptop to write your exams on, form of privilege. Um, knowing how to speak to people at a cocktail party about um, things that people in Toronto talk about at a cocktail party, privilege. Um, easy to pronounce name, like you said on a previous podcast, Mike, like Mike Anderson, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. shared experience. So yeah. Uh, do you want to add anything to that just before we? Yeah. It, and it, and oftentimes, I mean, you look at uh, with these numbers, folks whose parents graduated from post-secondary, oftentimes a network flows from that, which means that, you know, even sometimes before you go to law school, your parents know a partner at a firm that you can go and talk to and at least build mentorship early and, and you have access to somebody who can help guide you. And, and may, sometimes that's a parent and sometimes that's uh, a parent's friend. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all of these, you know, and then obviously we layer on, um, you know, folks with white skin have privilege. Um, you know, there's, there's those, those obvious things as well that, you know, we get to, basically it's like, if you have the ability to waltz through a situation that other people incur barriers for, that's a form of privilege, right? right. Anytime there's not yeah. a barrier for you and there is for others, right. that's that's where we're at. And so, you know, we're talking about money today and we're talking about debt and and that's, there's so many ways that the monster of, of finance can, can cause barriers for people where in other people, again, they just get to waltz through without that being um, an issue necessarily. Okay, so that is hopefully satisfies the request. If not, I'm sure I'll hear about it. Um, we can go into further detail. <laughs> There's much more to say about it, I'm sure. 
I will admit that as a straight white male, uh, I am probably one of the worst people <laughs> to, to properly explain privilege, yes, but too. I'm trying yes. uh, and I'm trying to acknowledge it in my own life. So I I probably am imperfectly describing it and I'm sure many people can do better, but we're, we're, we're giving it our best. Yeah, so let's put an asterisk on that for sure. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is that we are in a profession that needs to disrupt itself in a lot of ways. So we have a situation where a lot of people cannot access the justice that they need. We have a skill that a lot of people need. We have um, services that a lot of people could benefit from. And with this structure that we've been talking about, I don't think it really supports this idea of innovating to minimize billable hours and stuff like that, or to provide the services right. at more reasonable costs so that people can access them. You know, who is going to have that motivation when they just got a job at a firm that operates with a billable hours target? And, you know, they don't care about the work. They don't uh, know the client, never met them. You know, like there are so many barriers within, if you consider what's happening with somebody in their first to third year, um, depending what type of law they're in and assuming that they're in a job that they don't want to be in. And that's not everybody, that's for sure. Um, you know, what does that do to our profession? What does that do to what people think of lawyers and and the value of the services they're getting and um, you know, who can innovate and, and what do we, like, I, I don't think that question is totally distinct from this law, um, debt, law school debt issue. It's, it's very, very difficult, um, to just be a town lawyer in, um, you know, a remote area where fees will be very low when you've schooled yourself, um, uh, in a place where you wind up with this sort of debt load. And so you have in that practical way, in the current state of law, folks who just are underserved. And then as you make an even better point, to innovate to to help those folks, you know, you, you need money and you need to take a step back and make, make a big venture and, and, and try to innovate in law and, as opposed to just doing the transactional work. Uh, and so we're in a situation on both of those sides where it, it's just setting up uh, the the issue to not be solved. Well, uh, and in Canada, you can't even be a non-lawyer and invest in a law firm, which is, uh, right. there is much more progress made in other jurisdictions like Australia, for example, has a very forward thinking. I think for 10 or 12 years, they've had this ability to um, have non-lawyer owners of uh, legal services companies, and they have all kinds of really interesting innovations happening there. Like imagine how businesses in Canada that weren't able to access external funding would operate. Mm-hmm. You know, they might have prohibitively priced products too. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, think of all the consumer goods that you use or, or apps or um, social media that started purely on the basis of like a giant venture fund. Um, you know, Amazon just recently became profitable. You know, like this is when you think about what's what it takes to build an innovative business it's not really built one billable hour at a time, um, you know, and then you try to innovate to bring down those billable hours and offer a more valuable product. So I think there's much to be said. We've talked about innovation a couple of times. It's obviously very top of mind for me, but, um, you know, I picture myself talking to someone with um, so much debt about how we need to redesign our services to make sure the client gets value and not, you know, we have to get, paid for our services properly too. But I just think about how someone would hear that in a different position, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just, uh, 
Yeah. I, and you, we, I want everyone in the profession to want that for our clients, but uh, it would be better if we could just kind of have fewer barriers to wanting that, you know, like, why does it have to be, you know, we, we aren't mother Teresa. We shouldn't have to be mother Teresa. We also shouldn't, I mean, you, if you want to be, that's a high lofty goal <laughs> to be. Um, but it's uh it's an interesting one because the bar, there are lots of obligations on lawyers. Like there are lots of things that make this profession stressful. And I think that it's really great if people are able to, you know, put all this stuff aside and just do what's right. You know, that's, I guess we should all definitely aspire to that. But these financial things are, are real. And I think they become more stressful when you spend a few years at a big firm in some ways too. I, I experienced the same thing and sorry to interrupt you, but I, I think I've mentioned it before. I received great advice once, which was uh, to never build your lifestyle on your salary. And I think that's what you're, uh, we're getting at earlier, darling, as well, is to build the life that you want and not to get caught up in all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And because if you start to build your life around your salary and you want to make a change, it's far more difficult. Uh, to do so. But I, I suppose for the purposes of this conversation, um, you know, the priority is uh, just surviving for the first little bit while uh, you're dealing with the the debt load that you have. Well, and you know, my focus on trying to minimize possessions and um, just get to the point where I'm not stressed out by managing my stuff. That's an interesting, maybe way interesting way to leave it is that so we have this like this reality uh, of financial stress for folks that are, you know, early in the profession or about to enter the profession. But, you know, for every challenge, there's an opportunity. And maybe the fact that you know you can't even get to the boat and you don't even have a place in your house to store the golf clubs uh, and, you, and, you, and all these sort of things means that you're in a position to establish your life in a way where you're not going to be servicing things in five or 10 years. And you can and at least take that challenge opportunity um to focus on the stuff that's important and and not have to concern yourself with the stuff that is unimportant um so maybe there's a small gift mm-hmm. in this <laughs> daunting uh sort of situation that people face i do think in some ways that's the positive yeah <clears throat> i think that's right i think that makes good sense because uh you it forces you to be mindful about what the choices are that you make and um we have an embarrassment of of choice options, right? Like that's kind of the, uh, there are so many options of what to do in life. And yes, some of them are um, harder to pursue for various reasons, but there's still just so many options compared to what it was like even 20 years ago. So, um, but anyway, good, good suggestion. This was uh, your topic. Okay, um, we're gonna go and we'll be back with our goods. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law, experienced legal counsel when and where you need us. To learn more about Interalia, visit the website at spelled I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. Thank you. And we are back with our goods, goods only. Uh, goods are things that we want to promote and support. Um, Darlene, mm. who goes first? Who goes first? This, okay. 
So some people might think this is political, but I'm pointing it out as a useful example of making clear the law or, or a complicated matter. Okay. So that's my, how I'm qualifying all this. Uh, our good friend, AOC, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, that everybody's aware of in the US, did, at committee, and I've sat, I've staffed committee members in Canada, and my goodness, they can be the most dry and boring things, even for folks engaged. Um, so recently, to make a point uh, about potential conflict of interest, um, you know, how uh, a candidate in the US can um, gather money from political action committees, uh, and uh, what when they when they become a congressperson or uh, even perhaps president, what they're obliged to um, do in terms of uh, avoiding conflicts and so on. So it could have been a very dry question set of questions to committee members, but instead she did all the work in advance and spoke uh, like a regular person and just asked questions. If I was a bad guy who wanted to do this, could I do that? And got yes or no answers from the committee members and really told a story that made her point. You can disagree with the point or not, and that's fine. But I think that that's a useful example for us practicing law too. When speaking to clients, uh, and even, you know, at, I, I suppose I'm not a litigator, but even advocating in court, to distill the matter so clearly, to get a yes and no answer, and to build a narrative, I just think um, is something that we can all benefit from focusing on uh, increasingly, because she did such an amazing job at explaining a complicated issue and leaving people not only with information, but a feeling and a, a general, um, you know, a, a very clear takeaway on the point she was trying to make. So I think that that was very well done. That's good. That's a definite good. And also she, it's true what she's saying, right? Like I find that sometimes the, the points being made in politics, the ones that are the most compelling, whatever the side of the equation that you're on are the, the ones that sound true. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's always so refreshing to hear in politics, people just owning the idea that it is just a conversation. It's about the people talking. And I think that's often very lost. And AOC is certainly bringing a bit of that back. So yes, good. Um, the other thing that's good, my, my uh, idol or the person who I just has so much to say about life that, that brings a lot of... Uh, a lot into me, my life is Oprah. <laughs> Mike is like, oh God, stop mm -hmm. talking about Oprah. Um, but she, everybody with your bingo sheets at home, you have you can cross off the Oprah you lawyer life square. Bingo. It would be Mike saying wonderful and lovely. Darlene talking about Oprah. <laughs> I didn't know I say those words too much. <laughs> I think oh no! In one per episode. I think if there were to be a drinking game about Lawyer Life podcast, you could do that too. Um, anyway, so she is doing just a great series on so many things that I just find beneficial. And the one that I listened to yesterday, it's her Super Soul uh, podcast. And it was talking just about relationships and how sometimes the people in your life that are the most um, impactful are the ones who don't let you just be yourself, the ones who kind of push you to be better. Um, and I thought that was really good because I think in this uh, we are, it's not um, easy to kind of call someone on, on their stuff, but I think it's, it can be a service to them. And uh, I find, I just found that to be a really useful way to look at things. So she always brings some wisdom into the, into the day and nice calm presence in my week. 
So yeah, those are my my goods. Oprah and a bit of politics thrown in. That's great. And you can't even just have a soul anymore. You have to have a super soul. You know? <laughs> Can I super soul that? <laughs> super. One member of the Intralia team is annoyed <laughs> by the mere reference to the term super. <laughs> well, thanks for the chat, as always. Yeah, you too. Have a good weekend. You too, Darlene. Okay, we'll talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Interalia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.